0: Light a campfire and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond fireside chats.
1: Hello and welcome to Leave Our World a Better Place. My name is Kasha and today I'm speaking with Dr. Ryan Daly, a marine scientist at the Oceanographic Research Institute, and Jamie Philmalter, a fisheries biologist with the South African Institute for Aquatic Biodiversity. J.D. and Ryan recently participated in Oceans Without Borders Marine Predator Tagging Expedition at NB Benguera, and we'll be talking about the significance of this study and how guests to the island can get involved in a similar research exercise planned for next year. Ryan and J.D., thanks so much for coming on the podcast to chat with us.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure.
1: Fantastic. You guys were very recently involved um, in the Marine Predator Tagging Expedition at Benguera, which is a project that's been going on with Oceans Without Borders for quite a while now. To kick off with, I'd like to ask you just to tell our listeners a little bit about yourselves and your backgrounds, the organizations that you represent, and also the, the role that you play in the Marine Predator Tagging Project.
0: Sure. Um, so I'm an honorary research associate at SIAB, uh, which is the South African Institute for Aquatic Biodiversity. Um, and I, my role in this project is I, I sort of have a, a two-pronged involvement. I've been working with wild oceans um, as a tagging coordinator for the Greater Bath Program, so assisting the various teams with getting um, their acoustic tags into their animals and into the water. Um, so mm-hmm. as this um, project falls under the part of that BAF program, I, they're assisting with that. And then I'm also a general collaborator on this work. Um, on GTs, I've been working, and, and other um, top predators, I've been working with Ryan on several species in South Africa and Mozambique, tagging and tracking them for probably the last seven or eight years, I'd say. Um, Mm. Yeah, so this is just really a follow on from a lot of the work we've been doing in the region already.
1: Fantastic. Ryan, how about you?
0: Yeah, so my relationship with, I
2: guess, the oceans Without Borders team goes way back. Um, I was a student with uh, Tessa Hemson at UCT many years ago, and uh, since about four years ago started collaborating on uh, some projects in, in Mozambique taking sharks but yeah more recently a scientist at the Oceanographic Research Institute in Durban and I'm involved in a number of projects where we track top marine predators so yeah we collaborate closely with Tessa and the Oceans Without Borders team on a number of projects uh, specifically um, in the Basaruto Archipelago National Park, where Benguera Island is. Uh, we've got a project focused on, on giant trevelli mm-hmm. and uh, grey reef sharks. So, yeah, it's been a number of years now that we've been working together. And, yeah, it's exciting. Fantastic. Thank you.
1: So I'd like to speak off um start off a little bit about talking about um, the project at Benguera or in the Bazaruta Archipelago a little bit more in detail, and then maybe move on to how it fits into the bigger picture. So just to start off with, for those of our listeners who are really not familiar um, with the whole concept of of tagging and and marine predator species, what are the main predator species that have been chosen to be monitored at Benguera or in the Bazaruta Archipelago, and why those species in particular?
2: In the marine environment... um you know, there's a diversity of species, but arguably those that are most important or indicative of the health of a marine ecosystem are top predators. And so, I guess it's sort of important to start by understanding what these top predators do, where they go, why they go there. Um, if they're under threat, do they need protection? So, uh, at Banguera Island, we chose the giant trevelli as a top predatory fish species, mm-hmm. and the grey reef shark as a as a key reef-associated top predator. And, and these species were chosen because of their importance and relative abundance within the Bazaruta Archipelago National Park. And also because the giant trevally interacts with fisheries in the region. Uh, it's important for local fisheries, sports fisheries, as well as uh, the marine ecosystem. And, and gray reefs are also an important indicator species uh, their health and abundance is is a sign of of a healthy reef. So, I really, just chose these two species as as complementary species to monitor and understand what they do, where they go, why they go there, and and how to protect them going forward.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so the giant trevally or the GT, as you call it, I mean, I've heard it mentioned a lot in sort of the context of, as you said, Ryan sport fishing, but perhaps not so much in the context of marine conservation. And I did find that a little bit surprising. So is that, you know, its role as an apex predator, is that one of the reasons that it's being monitored? Because it's got such a sort of roll down effect on the rest of the system.
2: Yeah, it's certainly an important top predator. And we've done studies looking at the trophic levels showing that they are dominant high level predators on a reef. But they also are really interesting because of their high value from, from the sports fishery. So yes, traditionally the values come from only catching them, but I think more recently is definitely been, uh, appreciation of their value uh, as an important part of a, of a healthy reef ecosystem. Yeah. JD certainly been fishing for GTs for a lot of his life. So maybe he's got some, some other perspectives.
0: Yeah, I would, I would just add, um, because they're an important top predator, they, they really are a good indicator of, of the health of the local ecosystem. So um, understanding how they move um, and where the th- their threats lie can give you a good idea of what important areas um, should be highlighted for protection. Um, and that's from a general perspective from an ecological perspective and that plays into back into the value the economic value um they have value both from recreational sports fishing um, to a lesser extent commercial fishing they don't generally don't make up a huge part of commercial fishing or artisanal fishing catches Mm -hmm. but also for uh, scuba diving activities um they people certainly enjoy seeing them so mm-hmm. they're a very good indicator species and and certainly have um, multiple uh, sort of levels of value mm-hmm.
1: so when you talk about an indicator species would that typically be one of the marine predator species and you know what would sh- what would monitoring you tell tell you about the marine environment as a whole you know do the factors that affect one of those species, would they kind of have an effect on the whole system?
0: Um, I would say that the, as an indicator, they're, they're sort of showing you if their presence and their abundance can be correlated quite well with the health of the ecosystem. So if if you're struggling to find them or if they're rapidly moving away from, say, the areas where we're monitoring them, it, it would suggest that the ecosystem is potentially not in such good shape um, and not able to support them because they're a top predator, they need to eat more um, other fish than things lower down in the mm-hmm. in the food chain. Mm-hmm. So from that sense, they really can tell you quite a lot about the, the health and, and stability of the local mm-hmm. environment.
1: Mm-hmm. And so for this particular study that we're looking at, um, the GT and marine predator study, could you tell me what were some of the reasons that the Bazaruto Archipelago and, and, in particular, Benguera was chosen as the site of the study?
2: Yeah, I mean the the, the Basaruto Archipelago National Park contains a variety of habitats from inshore seagrass beds, sand flats, and offshore coral reef systems. It's it's a really incredible marine ecosystem, uh, and it's diverse at the same time, and. It's known for abundance of, of big fish and giant trevelli is certainly one of those that uses many of the important habitat types um, in the archipelago from seagrass, estuary, mangroves to coral reefs. Mm-hmm. Um, these fish as juveniles uh, use sort of nursery areas, which may include estuaries, mangroves, sheltered reef systems. And as they grow, they start to move more and typically frequent offshore, deeper reef system, So it's really just a, an example of a fish that um, is well represented at, at Basaruto mm-hmm. and, and one which we felt would, would give us a good indication of important habitats in the Bazaruto Archipelago National Park. Mm-hmm. And also because National Park is a multi-use zone, uh, some areas you can fish, some areas you can't fish. This includes artisanal fishing, sports fishing, um, some areas you can only dive in. So it was also a chance to look at how the species may utilize different zones of the protected area and, and if there's a need to improve protection for the species. And Benguera is just perfectly situated mm-hmm. in, in the middle of the, the island chain or the archipelago so it gives us really good access to yeah. areas that, that these giant really frequent.
1: So just going back very quickly to what you mentioned about the Basaruta Archipelago Marine Reserve. Does that play a role in the site having been chosen? And, you know, even in the number of, of fish that you're actually able to tag and monitor in the area?
2: Yeah, certainly. I think a lot of the research comes down to kind of adding to, to improve conservation. So the Basaruta Archipelago National Park has a, a management plan uh, where regulations are implemented. And so, you know, it's a it's a framework into which our research can feed into. So it's a really important part of why we chose the mm-hmm. area for the study.
1: So you can actually take the results of the study and feed it into somewhere where you can make an impact or a change in, in the actual management of the area. Absolutely. Okay, great. Okay, and just um, to understand sort of the context of you know, the marine populations in the Bazaruto area. Could you talk a little bit about that? Maybe what are the fish stocks in general in the area and also the GT numbers in particular? Is there concern about the fish stocks and GT numbers? Are they increasing, decreasing? What is the context for the
2: study? I think, yeah, the challenge with the low marine protected areas is that there's there's pressure from from many different sides in, in terms of people wanting to catch fish. So, yeah, the Bazaruto Archipelago is a critical area for, for many fish species, but also has a, a lot of people that rely on the area for food um, and to fish. So it's a delicate balance and certainly is a critical habitat for very as well as many other iconic species, such as dugongs, uh, which was one of the reasons it was originally declared a protected area. Mm-hmm. So it needs constant management, and monitoring to ensure that the marine ecosystem stays in balance. And currently, it's a bit of a patchwork, I think, where some areas are well protected and the giant really are abundant, whereas other areas are relatively heavily fished. So we need to understand more about this and and, and how to go forward. um, At the same time, ensuring a good balance uh, between communities. Marine ecosystem and, and most importantly the sustainability of fish species such as the John Travilla. Mm.
1: Just so talking about communities as well. Obviously, that's one of the factors that that plays into the whole management of the park. You know, can you speak a little bit about that and the impact it could potentially have on fish stocks, and also any other causes that could potentially affect or decrease fish stocks in the area?
0: I think the Certainly, taking the local communities and, and even at a slightly broader scale, the reliance on the, on the local fish stocks is obviously very high. So it's essential to develop the management plans that include sort of multiple use areas where people have access to fish stocks, but without monitoring catches by the communities and whoever's, catching, if it's local communities or sports fishing, spearfishing, whatever. Um, those catches need to be monitored in order to really understand the trajectory of the local fish stocks. But aside from just fishing, there can be sort of correlated impacts from the actual fishing activities. So not just removing the fish, but degrading the habitat. So Ryan mentioned nursery areas. And things like giant trevelli in the early juvenile stages will use shallow lagoons and estuaries as nursery areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and those areas are typically highly impacted by um, activities such as netting. And so although at a at a larger size, the population, the numbers may look good, if, if the nursery is seriously degraded, you can start to see the impact in, in years to come where juveniles are struggling to get, make it through to the adult population. So mm. monitoring all of those activities and, and bringing them into your management structures is key mm. um, to sort of working towards mm. the sustainable use of, a, mm. of an area.
1: Okay, thank you. Now to talk a little bit more about the actual process of what it is that you do with the tags and how it all works. Could you explain first of all what is an acoustic tag, and then how does the process work? How are the GT caught? How are they tagged? And then how are the tags actually monitored afterwards?
0: So um, the acoustic tags are also known as transmitters. The ones we use are about a little bit bigger than a double A battery, and they're designed to be internally implanted into the fish. So there's nothing on the outside of the fish. So what we do is. We go to sea and spend our time Mm -hmm. attempting to catch giant TTs, which can be difficult at times. But once we've caught one and got it to the boat, we have a a sling that's filled up with water and we put the fish inside there and then turn it upside down and surgically implant the tag. So we make a small incision, put the tag into the body cavity of the fish and then uh, stitch it up before letting it go. Um, And the way that the acoustic tag works is that it, sends out a unique identifying code Mm -hmm. and the tags that we are using send that code out about every 40 to 60 or 70 seconds. And that code is then detected by fixed receiver stations that are on on the ground at strategic sites. Mm -hmm. So around Bazaruto, there are Hmm. Ryan, can you remember exactly how many? But I would guess about 15 monitored sites with receivers. Um, And if the fish with the tag in it swims within about half a kilometer of one of those receivers, Mm -hmm. then the receiver hears the tag, hears the signal that it's transmitting, and records the time and date that it heard that fish at. And then we go out or other local field teams will go out and uh, retrieve the the acoustic receiver once every six months uh, to once a year, uh, depending on where they are. And that data is then downloaded. The, all the data that's stored on the receiver is then downloaded and the receiver is cleaned up and given new batteries and then put back in the sea. And then we can look retrospectively at which fish have Swam past that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so you build a picture in the past, if that makes sense yeah. of of who has been where over the last six months or year, and then you can calculate various metrics of of movement from that data on an individual level. so you can see how things have moved. And so none of this is happening uh, in real time from our side, mm-hmm. but it, you know the fish are monitored in real time as they're swimming around. And obviously, the more receivers you have in the water, the better your ultimate understanding of their movements are. Mm-hmm. And the tags that we're putting in will last for six to eight years into each fish. Mm-hmm. And the receivers themselves, will they'll run for about mm-hmm. a year on their battery. But mm-hmm. because we keep changing the batteries, they'll as long as we don't have any technical problems, they can go on in perpetuity. Oh, wow. So essentially, we'll... The longer you wait, the more information you have and the richer the data set on Mm. on Mm. how these things move. And you can start looking at longer-term cycles in movement, so from seasonal to interannual to decadal rhythms of movement and really get a a good understanding of areas of high use and areas of transit and seasonal patterns through the whole uh, TAG population. We know from other work in other parts of Mozambique that giant Trevally typically form aggregations to when they're spawning. So they'll often get together at very specific times of the year and make large aggregations. Um, and those aggregations are are key to, one, their reproductive success. And they're also key to, for management because they, they're areas where fish like these can be overexploited very easily because a large portion of the population is is uh, concentrated in a small area for short periods of time. So if those are targeted by larger scale fisheries, you can have a massive impact on the population in a very short period of time if you catch all the fish during their spawning aggregations. And in the Bazaruto archipelago, we currently don't know anything about their spawning behavior, if it's occurring within the park, or if it's outside the boundaries of the park, or if they're if they're making big aggregations like we've seen elsewhere. Mm. Um, so, this kind of information, this kind of tagging work over time through multiple years, we'll be able to start to pick up on patterns which will inform us about the potential, these sort of potential behaviors if they are occurring mm. um, as we've seen elsewhere.
1: Okay. And the sites where you have the receivers placed, are they chosen for? you know, because it's a specifically sensitive site where something in the life cycle of the GT occurs or is it just a site that's protected enough where you know your receivers are actually going to get washed out to sea or or is it designed to sort of overlap and offer as much coverage? Um, how is that designed?
0: Yeah, generally we, we try and place receivers because they're so key to interpreting and understanding the data. And because the system is applied to multiple species, not just GTs, and all all tags on all animals will work on the same system. So uh, because we're limited by the number of receivers we have, um, you try and overlap in areas where other animals, such as the grey reef that we're working on as well, but also other groups' animals. So there's some people in in um, basruto that are also tagging manta rays for example and we all share the data um between the various groups but Mm -hmm. it's yes we sort of can discuss and identify sites that could potentially benefit everybody the most Mm -hmm. so we'll also target specific sites like reefs that uh, we know are highly productive and maybe where we've caught a lot of The GTs that we've tagged, we suspect that those are important places, so we'll try and put a receiver as close as we can to that. But then there's also like key geographic or bathymetric points that we would like to monitor. So channels that feed out from the inner um, lagoon of, of the archipelago to the open ocean. Those are sort of choke points where if fish are going to move through, they've got to kind of go through those areas. So if by putting a receiver there, we we'll, should be able to see movement from one side to the other. Mm. So there's a whole range of, of factors that we look at when we decide on where to place a receiver. But mm. as you said, something that's safe and sort of not too risky in terms of loss is also um, a a key part of the decision-making. Yeah, um, And then, yeah, so there, there's definitely lots of factors. We have to think about, you know, going back and getting them. So you don't want to put them in places that are too hard to reach as well because you have to mm-hmm. be able to service them and change the batteries and download the data on a regular basis. So, yeah, there's lots of things to consider. Mm-hmm. But essentially it's it's really trying to cover as many key habitats or areas that we think um, are likely to have an important role um, in the animals that we're studying. Mm,
1: absolutely. Well, I think I think the technology behind this is absolutely fascinating. And, I mean, there must be incredible technological t- challenges that are involved in this kind of project. Um, could you speak a little bit about some of these and how you've managed to overcome them?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, if we just r- rewind way back to through the technology that we use on animals that that live on land, obviously we can just use satellite telemetry uh, because we've got GPS signal on land, but underwater, you you can't do that. So we we need to rely on these acoustic tags and receivers to follow the fish around, Um, which comes with a lot of different challenges. Um, (laughs) As we discussed the, the placements and maintenance of the receivers, you know, just maintaining this equipment underwater is generally difficult between swell, the harsh environment, all kinds of things can go wrong. And we've certainly lost receivers in the past. So we need to make sure that the moorings for the receivers are all up to scratch to to sort of withstand the, the harsh environment that we put them in. And then we need to sort of guess where to put these receivers because as JD mentioned, the range of the receivers might only be about 500 meters. So we need to think carefully about the placements of receivers in relation to the questions we're trying to ask, which may include, you know, are they crossing the internet they using particular sites such as offshore reefs for, for spawning or aggregating. So mm-hmm. each one of the receivers we put out is literally like a, a drop in the ocean. Um, but surprisingly give us a lot of meaningful data when we put the time in, but yeah, there's always challenges just getting back into the field and, and driving around the Basarita Archipelago National Park is is challenging. It's it's a massive expanse of, of ocean <laughs> um, that the weather can be upside down sometimes and, and really yeah. challenging. Uh, the visibility can be bad when we need to dive the receivers out. So, yeah, there's a lot of things that need to come together to make a successful study.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: Have there been any recent developments in technology or any new technologies that have come up that have made this just a lot easier?
2: Not really. I think there's new technologies for sure. I mean, we we're putting on sort of Fitbits for for fish and sharks <laughs> now. We, we we have activity tags that monitor you know the movement patterns of these these fish and sharks. Yeah, we've got cameras that we can use to put on the fish and the sharks, which we've done mm-hmm. to give us a new insight into their their lives. Mm. But but if if we look at just the basic question of understanding where underwater. Fish and sharks go. The acoustic telemetry has sort of been the stalwart for for answering these questions for for over a decade now. Okay, perfect.
1: Now, JD spoke about you know sort of the other projects that monitor fish in the area. Have you ever had somebody from another project call you up and say, "Hey, you know, we we caught one of your GTs or one of your grey reef sharks on our equipment, say all the way down somewhere completely unrelated to to where you first tag the fish?
2: Yeah, absolutely. We we share data on the movements of different species all the time because another site that we have these receivers at is in southern Mozambique, as well as throughout South Africa. And mm-hmm. as as a network or group of people working together, we constantly sharing tag detections. So we've yet to to have any significant movements of of giant trevelli or gray reef sharks. But we every year we record the movement of bull sharks within our receiver array that come all the way from the Western Cape where, where JD is located. Mm-hmm. So these sharks are traveling 6,000 kilometers a year, passing through the study sites and back. Uh, we've got great white sharks that get detected from people that have tagged them in, in the Cape in South Africa, and as well as local partners from the Marine Megafauna Foundation that are tagging manta rays, and other species that are detected on receivers that we share. So, so we've got a, a sort of network setup that we, we share the data between each other, because as JD was saying, everybody's tag can get detected on everybody else's receiver. Mm-hmm. So it's critical mm-hmm. to sort of share this information and monitor the area for any unusual migrations we might pick up.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you said the GT and, and the gray reef sharks that you've been tagging in the Bazaruta area they tend to stay mainly within that region
2: and that's where you've been picking them up so far, but, uh, they are moving, you know, in and out of the park boundaries, but you know, that's still a hundred kilometers of coastline, which is quite substantial. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm sure that they're going to be moving further sure. afield as, as time goes on. And, and as we expand our, our receiver network in the area. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I think if I could just mm-hmm. add, I think okay. that's a, the, The key thing here is that we have sort of a concentration of of receivers monitoring um, what happens uh, in and around the park. But at a slightly broader regional scale, there's not that concentration of receivers. So if the animals do move outside of our study site, um, they have to swim quite a long way before they're going to get picked up again by a receiver somewhere else along the coastline. Mm. So they may well be moving quite far but just not within the range of of the next set of receivers and like if they're going south in southern Mozambique if they're going north mm-hmm. it's, it's really a long way before they find any <laughs> bump into any more receivers um so the the movements could be quite extensive but yeah, yeah this technology relies on on the power of your receiver network
1: mm-hmm. and I think you you mentioned the number of receivers that you have but you know what kind of uh, geographic area? What kind of what kind of spread of area does that allow you to monitor?
0: I think it's just over one hundred kilometers of coastline. But yeah, I think so, one hundred kilometers, and probably uh, at its widest point, probably mm. twenty kilometers wide, thirty kilometers wide across the park.
1: Okay, it's pretty impressive.
0: But these link into receivers that are located down
2: at, at Tofino, Zavoro, yeah. Ponte de Oro. All the way down to Cape Town, which, you know, includes uh, 2,000 kilometers of coastline. So there are some gaps in the network, but essentially, you know, going forward, we hope that this this growing network of receivers covers the whole coast of Mozambique and South Africa. Mm
1: -hmm. You know, you've spoken about that network, and I know there are quite a few projects going on all up and down the coastline. I think, JD, you were involved in the Mozambique telemetry network and setting that up.
0: Yeah, both of us were.
1: And there's also... Okay. <laughs> Great. There's also the acoustic tracking array platform. Can you speak a little bit about how many of those networks there are and um you know how important they are in actually fitting all the pieces together?
0: Yeah, so regionally those are pretty much the, the two networks we have. So ATAP, the acoustic tracking array platform, is the South African network. Um and that's made up of of um receivers that are Maintained by various collaborators along the South African coastline, as well as those that are dedicated specifically to the ATAP array, um, which are set up as long-term monitoring sites and monitor- and maintained by SIAB. Um, and that that receiver array, I mean, it changes as people enter and exit the network, but it's typically about 150 to 180 receivers spanning from mm-hmm. Cape Town to the Mozambican border at Cozy Bay or Pontedora, um, and then the Mozambican network. There are must i don't actually have the figure exactly. Maybe able to give us a better idea, but I would—I'd guess about 40 receivers, maybe. Ryan,
2: yeah, I think it's still uh, sort of in its early. Yeah. Stages as as at the moment it's a kind of group of collaborators that share data, um, and so this year we've been working on sort of formalizing that more, um, ensuring that data is shared between partners. But yeah, I think about forty receivers in total, as we put out more in the south and Marine Megafauna Foundation deploys more, sort of centrally mm. as well as APEID for which which has been going on for a number of years. So it's getting there. Mm.
1: Can you maybe talk about the connection between the monitoring projects that have been going and the establishment of protected marine reserves along the coastline? Is there a connection between the two? You know, does, does the data that's being gathered all up and down the coast speak into the formation of these reserves or, you know, is there increasing evidence that those sites are connected?
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, essentially, uh, interestingly, a lot of the, you know, it's really important that we don't just have sort of, Parks on paper, but we really want to understand why we have protected areas. We want to improve the management of protected areas through improving sort of the, the, the regulations. Mm-hmm. And yes, the data certainly feeds straight into improving the management of these protected areas. Mm-hmm. So uh, there are also receivers outside of protected areas, you know, in other areas, but a focus of our work at the moment is within the Basruto archipelago. A national park Mm -hmm. and there's certainly a need for receivers Mm -hmm. in in other areas habitats that may be critical and in need of protection and i think that's definitely something we're going to look at going
0: i'll just add there i think Mm. it would be ultimately we would love to see um the use of this kind of information um feeding into the development of of new parks um i don't think to date that hasn't really happened mostly because the technology is younger than the parks if that makes sense. So mm. we haven't been really doing this long enough to have the opportunity to say, hey, you know, this is a key area based on this data. Because the data takes a long time to collect, studies like this don't just happen overnight. So I think in time, it it would be great if, if that can happen. And that's sort of what we do aim towards.
1: Mm. Yeah. You mentioned earlier the use of multiple use zones, particularly in the Bezuut Archipelago Marine Park. The kind of data that comes from studies like this can that be used to inform those multiple use zones and and how they're determined and and how they grow and change and is that something that's like a an aim in in other protected
2: areas? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the pr- priority for. The research that we do and, and so you know we, we have receivers in different zoned areas in Basarito National Park as well as other places along the coast and and to give you an example we might find that a, a particular area is really important for spawning of a fish only in particular months of the year so let's say June and July um, we can then go back to management and say, these species are very vulnerable in June and July. So, should we implement a fishing closure over those two months? Hence, finding a balance between sort of being able to still catch the fish that maybe communities or sports fisheries depend on for their livelihoods, but also s- ensuring the sustainability of the fish through informed sort of management decisions mm-hmm. um, that we can garner from research that we're doing.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure, absolutely. Um, Now, how long has the tagging project in, in the Bezirut Archipelago been going for?
2: So, we started putting receivers out three years ago now.
1: Okay. And, you know, is there data that's already been gathered that allows you to draw any conclusions or is it still far too early for that?
2: Yeah, I think we've got some great data so far, Jody. I mean, we've been working on it recently.
0: Yeah, look, we do. We've certainly collected some um, fantastic data to date. Um, I think as the we've seen a sort of an increase in the density of receivers in the last year or so, um, and with those receivers going in, the data is going to get a lot richer in the near future because those fish that have been tagged already are, are you know, still swimming around. Um, So I would expect that the next time uh, data is downloaded, we'll probably get a much better picture of what these fish are getting up to. Um, The first sort of look at what we've got so far has shown some very interesting movements right across our entire array around Basruta. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think going forward, we're going to see a much more holistic view throughout the year Mm. of what these fish are getting up to.
1: Hmm. Absolutely. Um, and you mentioned l- a little bit earlier, you know, other projects that you've been involved in, such as at um, Vermizi up in the Karimbas. How does the project at Benguera and the findings or what you've seen so far, how does it relate to or how does, does it compare to sites like Vermizi or other areas where you've done research?
2: Yeah, the, the site up at Vermizi. You know, was the focus of the Grey Reef Shark Tagging Initiative, and Tessa has been collecting data up there with the Ocean Reserve Borders team for for a number of years, and a lot of that data is still coming in because I know that COVID sort of put a bit of a halt to to activities up there, but I think yeah, the Bazaruto National Archipelago Park. Study around Benguela has certainly given us a lot of interesting data, specifically because it mm. it's data from various habitats that are so close to each other, including the sand flats, seagrass beds, offshore reef systems. So we're collecting really good data, which which is very comparable to other study in in southern Mozambique, uh, where we found that these giant Trevally travel, you know, seven hundred kilometers down the coast and back up again to to very particular spawning sites. So. We're getting there in, in Bazaruto slowly, understanding where the fish go and why they go there.
1: Mm. So, obviously, l- longevity is key to getting meaningful results out of something like this. How long is the Bazaruto study planned to go on for? And, you know, what are the next steps?
2: Yeah, I think it's a long term study at the moment. Like JD was saying, these tags can last up to 10 years. So, we've really got a lot of, of work ahead of us. Mm. And interestingly, JD and I, did a study in Seychelles where we, we found that giant Travelli, for example, may take two two years to reach the sort of full extent of their habitat range. So this just really highlights the need to collect long-term data on these fish's movements, mm-hmm. as well as sharks, as they grow, these sharks may utilize different habitats, immature versus mature sharks and fish may use different habitats in different ways. So I think it's really a long game and we certainly plan to stick around and collect a lot more data going forward.
1: Hmm. So speaking into that, I know that um, Oceans Without Borders has worked with with and beyond to put together the marine predator tagging expedition where guests can actually come and sort of and make a financial contribution and be part of this whole process. You know, what is the kind of contribution that they're making towards marine conservation with that? And, and what can somebody who tags along on one of these trips hope to experience?
0: This is um Hmm. quite unique you know we we do this kind of thing on a sort of daily basis yeah i think we take for granted how how difficult it is to get this kind of work done so particularly getting your hands on the animal can be very difficult but at times it, it works out really nicely and it's it's quite straightforward but um i think for a guest to to get on the water and experience the, the difficulties and sort of the Mm. tribulations of, of uh, getting this right um, is, is really not something that you can appreciate without having been there and done that. Mm. But the contribution is definitely significant. I mean, any sort of Mm. be it financial or, or um, whatever um, that'll, that, can go towards expanding the work we do, and just generally creating a better awareness of the of the situation and understanding of of the threats that these ecosystems and these species in particular face. By really immersing yourself in in the experience, I think mm. it can be really eye opening for the guest to to understand what's going on and how these sort of projects are are uh, work. You know.
1: Mm. Hmm. You know, I think land-based conservation pro- projects have had a lot of airtime, and there's a lot of a lot of sort of knowledge, and a lot of people are aware of them. But marine conservation is something still very new in terms of any kind of interactive experience. So I'm sure it's bound to be quite an eye-opener.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, being at sea, one needs to consider the the conditions, and and these are not always cooperative. But yeah, like JD says, I think you know guests can get first-hand experience of the challenges that that we face while trying to research these animals, but also just get a much better appreciation of of what it takes to to do this sort of research um, and improve the conservation for these species. And you know, working with Anbeyond so far has just been incredible in, in terms of the logistical support, um, financial supports, and really just willingness to get on board and and help us to to do this research and improve the sort of conservation outcomes of the species that we're interested in. So yeah, for guests to understand the bigger picture also around why we're we doing this, the need for it, plans of 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 how to do it, improve the conservation of these species, ensure the sustainability of our marine resources that certainly and beyond and, and, and associated tourism depends on, the, yeah, just a great opportunity.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much, both of you, J.D. and Ryan. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and um, really, really fascinating. I hope we get a chance to chat again once you've got some more results from the project that you can share with us.
0: Brilliant. Thanks so much. Wonderful. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you for listening to Leave Our World a Better Place. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode. If you'd like to find out more about Beyond, please log on to our website at andbeyond.com.